Greetings, comrades, and welcome to How the Left Was Won. My name is Mike. I'm Jake. And this is a Marxist-Leninist podcast all about fascism and how to fight it. Jake, how has your week been? It's been pretty all right, I'd say. Uh, learned that we're going to be changing to a four-day week for the summer. Yeah. Uh, so that's going to be exciting because I'll have tomorrow off. Meanwhile, I, I worked my seventh day this week, which is great, yeah. which I mean, that, that's I know I've been working this job for a while during the summer. We do work six to seven day weeks, alternating who gets Sundays off. But, you know, whatever. This is the job I, I chose. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. Technically, I guess I chose it. Not not with a whole lot of options, but uh, this should be my last summer at this job. And then I'll get like an inside job, which is what I wanted in the first place. An inside job at the deep state. <laughs> but uh yeah my week has been hasn't been super eventful um i got to run my pathfinder which is kind of like pathfinders like D D, dungeons and dragons i got to run it in my uh campaign a session of my campaign this past wednesday which at this point has become like pretty uncertain whether or not i'll actually be doing that on wednesdays just because you know life gets in the way of stuff yeah but uh, but on the opposite end my friend's campaign uh, like 15 minutes before the session started, it was supposed to be yesterday, I, I basically just told them, I'm too tired to do this from work, I need to sleep. And I felt really, <laughs> really bad about it. Yeah, work makes you tired. It, it, unfortunate fact of life that uh, doing physical activity is exhausting. Well, the thing is, is that I'm used to this job at this point. I don't know why I was so tired, I, but I think I think it has to do with the the assignments I've been been being given at work have been pretty easy like it, it just requires me i i work like um a manual labor job i work at a golf course lots of mowing stuff but um uh for like the past few weeks i've been doing a, one of the things i've been doing is just i get to be on a motor that i get to drive so not a whole lot of walking and then like on saturday i did a lot of walking which i hadn't done in a while so <laughs> yeah <laughs> but anyway aside from that i got new shoes new sneakers Woo. which um at my job, I like for the past few years, I've been wearing my sneakers to work, and they just kind of disintegrate over time. And I finally got <laughs> decent boots, and then I was like, "Let me get a new pair of sneakers." And then I just won't wear sneakers to work. I'll wear my decent boots. Yeah, I have a pair of work boots. They're not decent though. Uh, they give me blisters, and I notice blood wells up in my fucking pinky toe. <laughs> oh Christ! I don't get that. But anyway, we're not here to talk about how we're manual laborers who need to, who need a, a socialist revolution. Yep, yep. Uh, to, for the workers. Well, we are, but not right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But anyway, um, last week we we began our dive into the life and times of Mussolini and the fascist party in Italy, which we didn't actually get to the fascist part um, yet. We got to like we got to 1909. I almost said 2009, which is way different. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, God. Well, way different. Yeah, there's still Mussolini's around. Yeah. Unfortunately, one of them's a politician. Yep. One, one plays soccer. One is on, like, a soccer team. Oh, yeah, I remember hearing that. Isn't it for, like, Spain or something? I can't remember. I just know that there, there is a player out there with a jersey that says Mussolini. And it's just like, why? I'm going to, like, change your name, uh, probably. That's probably the best option yeah. you could do. Yeah, but but uh, I'm looking it up right now. What? Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, this guy plays for. 
Anyway, as you're looking that up, I'll, I'll continue with our intro. So anyway, we got to 1909 where he was writing for a socialist publication before getting kicked out of Austria where this publication was being published. And he published a serial in this publication called The Cardinal's Mistress, or that's, that's the shortened name. And we figured, hey, let's read Mussolini's probably shitty book. And boy, is it shit. At least... In my opinion, at least at least what we read, we read the, uh, chapter one. Well, I read the introduction in chapter one, and Jake just read chapter one. But I feel like the introduction is important, especially uh, for some of the stuff I want to uh, mention. Yeah. Anyway, you gotta you gotta that guy. What team he plays for? Uh, yeah, it was Lazio. It's just like a state in Italy. Uh, okay. Uh, I thought he played for like a fucking national team that uh, was in Italy, but I was wrong. Yeah, I feel I feel like if he played for a national team, that would be just like a little bit too much. Imagine yeah. a Mussolini at the World Cup. Yeah, Mussolini wins the World Cup. So anyway, I feel like we should probably just jump into this uh, into this book, The Cardinal's Mistress by Benito Mussolini. This particular version, I don't know how many versions there actually are out there, but this one was published in 1908 uh, and was translated by this dude called Hiram Motherwell. Um, or I, I, I looked into this guy. Sometimes his name is spelled Motherwell, which with a D instead of a TH. Oh, that's weird. And, um, I figured, Hey, I should probably look into this guy. What's this guy's deal? Why is he translating this book? Is he a fascist or did he just find this like a curiosity that he wanted to translate? What's his deal? Why is he involved in this? And I honestly couldn't find a whole lot on this guy. Um, so it seems like he was like pretty into theater. He wrote a book titled The Theater of Today, which I actually didn't write down when, uh, he wrote that, but that's not super relevant. It's also today is spelled two hyphen day, (laughs) but he also, uh, wrote for Theater Guild magazine, which was a publication for a group called the Theater Guild in New York City. Um, which I also couldn't find a whole lot about. I know it was founded in 1918 and um, it put on like quite a bit of shows. I think it was nonprofit, actually. Oh, yeah. And they they stopped putting on shows in 1996, at least on Broadway. So he's like a theater kid. Yeah, like the translator. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, again, I couldn't find a whole lot of information about them. I think I saw something about them at one point, like doing cruises. I don't think they owned a cruise line. Maybe they were doing specialty cruises that focused on theater. But I didn't like find a whole lot of information about that. I just meant I just heard saw mention of cruises at some point. But I don't think they really exist anymore. I found another group called the American Theater Guild, but I don't know if it's related at all. Right. Um. But yeah, I like he he was apparently into theater. But uh, aside from this book, also I should mention that um, this, like as I mentioned, this was published in 1928. This translation, so we're already six years into the fascism. So this guy published uh, Mussolini's a translation of Mussolini's book while Mussolini was reigning dictator. Yep. I don't know why, but that's really funny yeah. to me. Yeah, but it, it is pre-World War II, so may, maybe maybe he's st- they still got the, oh, he makes the trains run on time yeah. shtick going. I mean, this guy is American, right? So there was actually like a lot of pro-Mussolini sentiment, especially among uh, Italian Americans. So it is possible that he just thought Mussolini was cool because that's what a lot of newspapers said that could be true but again I'm not not entirely sure but also in 1929 he published a book entitled the imperial dollar which 
I looked a lot for this book. Uh, I wasn't able to find a whole lot on it. Like most of the uh, st like uh, online storefronts that I saw didn't really have a description. But and uh, also like if like it was either out of stock or I had to buy a physical copy. There was no digital versions, and I wasn't going to. And like lots of it was like thirty dollars, and I'm not spending that money on this book that is like almost certainly well outside the scope of this podcast and yeah. a spe a specifically this episode. But um, there is a, a brief and vague description on Foreign Affairs' website, which I can read if you want me to. Sure, why not? Um, if I can open the link in my notes. Also, I should mention the tagline of this book real quick before I actually get into the description. Um, the tagline is, An Outline of America's Progress Towards World Domination. So... Huh. And again, this was in 1929, so a year after the he translated uh, The Cardinal's Mistress. So on uh, foreignaffairs.com, a well-known foreign correspondent... Uh, so I al I'm already going to object to a well-known foreign correspondent. <laughs> well, it's just like, no, he's not well-known. And also, I think he was American, so not foreign, but whatever. Yeah. Uh, sketches in broad lines the, de the, eh, the development of American imperialism and sets forth... Fourth, the fundamental conditions of its growth. For him, the imperial dollar is a reality which has to be dealt with as a hard, cold fact. Uncritical enthusiasm, as well as fanatical condemnation, will not help the situation. The American empire is the ineluctable result of various factors governing, governing the evolution of the United States, combined with a peculiar world situation arising from the war. The American conquest of the world, economically speaking, is well-nigh irresistible and is not yet complete. The United States will continue to export capital and consequently will receive an ever-increasing tribute from abroad. How this tribute will be used in the future is one of the crucial questions which the writer leaves to the gods. On the whole, this is a well-informed and readable discussion of some of the broadest aspects of present-day international relations. Huh. So... His analysis seems kind of influenced by leftist politics. It, it seems like he, we could consider him a bit lefty, you know. Well, the thing is, is like, is he is he critical of the United States because he thinks that imperialism and like this this idea of superpowers is bad, or is he against the United States because he he's cool with Italy and he's just like, hmm. Yeah, that is a good question. Like, is he critiquing the U.S. Based on the fact that it's an imperial power, or is it just not the imperial power he wants? Yeah, it's just like, um, it's like not exactly a one to one, but like, like we're critical of the United States, absolutely. The United States has done horrible, horrible things for yeah. a very long time, but then there's people who are who call themselves leftists who like are like cool, like, like Russia because they're like Russia is against the United States. It's like, yeah, but that doesn't make them good guys, yeah, like. There can be two bad guys at the same yeah. time. Yeah. It's like, are you against the United States because you think they're a bad guy, or are you against the United States because you're on the side of other bad guys? Pretty much, and that is just the case for, like, a lot of fucking weird political analysis. Yeah, and it's just like, yeah, no, being, like, <laughs> I saw someone actually saying that, like, Putin was, like, was, like super leftist because it's like, being against the United States is the most leftist thing you could do. It's just like... It's just like, yes, being against the United States is generally a leftist thing, but no, Putin is not on the left. Yeah, no, uh, Putin is like a fucking oligarch or something. Yeah. Like, he's a, he's a capitalist through and through. He fucking shit talks Lenin. Yeah, but, um, 
yeah, like it's so he's definitely like he definitely has problems with America and its growing power in the world at the time because this is post war or at War least I. an interest in it that he's very open about. Yeah. But uh yeah, I didn't think that that description from Foreign Affairs was super helpful. It's just like this guy this guy does a good job talking about yeah. this topic and it's just like okay. Um but aside from that, another he like there's one other book that he wrote entitled The Peace We Fight For, which also has a f- br- like brief and vague description on foreign affairs. Although this description is even briefer. Um I'll just read this real quick. Uh, An American journalist seeks to visualize the political, economic, and social conditions which may have which may be expected to prevail in Europe when the war ends. In general, his prognosis commands respect, as, for example, his emphasis on the critical role of food. His suggestions for therapeutic measures will seem, in some cases, less realistic. And that's it. Hmm. That, not a whole lot there. Yeah, no, it, it seems like just kind of a dude. He's either... He's using leftist terms, but back then people were a bit more open about, like, what they were fucking doing. Yeah, also, if I didn't mention, if I forgot to mention, that it, this book was published in 1943, so this is uh, n- close, kind of close to the end of World War II. I see. It's still a couple years left, but yeah, it seems to be just about, like, what he thinks the state of Europe will be once the yeah. war ends. And again, it's just like, I don't know if he's saying, hey, we should, hey, war bad because war bad, or if he's saying war bad because I want the Nazis and the and the Italian fascists to win. Yeah, I hope it's not that. Yeah, but also it's just like, again, Foreign Affairs just says, this guy did good, a good job. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, well, how do I know? Also in this description, when I, like the word role, has like a diatric mark or diacritic mark above it, like the little triangle, and I have no idea why. It's just there. Weird. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I think we should just get started with uh, reading the book. Um, yep. I-, I may as well read through the whole introduction because, like you said, you didn't read it, and also I have uh, some comments sp- uh, specifically about some stuff in the introduction. Sounds good. In 1909, Benito Mussolini, then in his 26th year, was working in Trent, at that time part of Austria, as secretary to the Socialist Chamber of Labor, or Trade Union Headquarters. He received a salary of $24 a month, which, uh, I mean, at least it's better than the current American salary. Yeah. Or, like, uh, wages. Uh, Or I wonder how the inflation was. I don't know. Uh... He received $24 a month, which he supplemented by giving French lessons. His work as secretary included his services as assistant to Cesare Battisti in editing Il Popolo, organ of the patriotic wing of the local Italian socialists, and its weekly supplement, La Vita Trentina, or The Trenton Life, Life in Trent. Hmm. Okay. One of his editorial duties was to write the weekly Fuelatan, for the supplement, Fuelaton is basically a cereal, which is what I'm right, going to say yeah. from now on because that's a hard word to pronounce. Yeah, I don't blame you. Among his contributions under this head was a cereal, Claudia Particella La Mente de Ca- del Cardinale Grande Romanzo de Tempi del Cardinale Emanuel Madruzzo. It is this romance which is here offered for the first time in English. So yeah, just a just a little bit of information about the origins of the books. No, so far nothing a whole, not a whole lot to add from me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I do find the Italian title very funny. Yeah, it's very what a long. Shit title. It's very long. I, I've noticed that lots of like stuff back then just had long titles. Yeah, it reminds me of how uh, 
with uh, light novels and manga in Japan. Yeah. There's so much bullshit out there yeah. that they try to catch the reader by writing the full fucking story. In yeah, the just, title. The, just the entire premise. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I've noticed, like, lots of stuff had, like, really long taglines. It's like, no, cut a lot of that out. You don't need all of that. Uh, so, anyway, Margarita Sarfati, in her supply, surprisingly candid Life of Benito Mussolini, entitled in the original Ducks, and it's, it says here that the original title was Ducks, but from what I saw, the Ducks was, like, the second title of her biography of Mussolini, but whatever, uh, gives the following account of its nativity. Mussolini's imagination lent itself better to another kind of story which he attempted, a highly colored romance a la Gorberau, which, uh, like, Gorberau, I, I didn't Gaborati. look... No, not that. I didn't look into him a whole lot, but I think he was just, like, a writer of some sort. Right. I was, I'm not entirely sure it's not relevant. With a basis reminiscent of Dumas Pere, Claudia Particella, or The Cardinal's Love, it was called... Uh, and also there's a note here in this version that says the translator chose to soften the rending of the word amante, uh, the cardinal's love, whereas like the translation we're reading uses the word mistress as opposed to love. Uh, it might also have been written with a view to use it as a film, and as a matter of fact, it has, I believe, been turned to this account by some enterprising cinema company. So, like she said, so uh, Sarfati is saying that he may have written this to be adapted into a film, which sounds weird for 1929. But from what I like from my research, I found that like the first feature film came out in 1906. Huh. So, so film he was, is aiming high. Yeah. So film was a thing at this time, like movies. It, it is kind of funny because yeah. there's authors who very clearly do that today. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I like, and she says that she thinks it is already being turned into a film or has been already. I couldn't find like, I don't believe that. I, I don't believe that yeah, at all. I don't think I don't think it worked out. Maybe yeah. somebody like bought the rights to do it. I don't think they made the movie. I don't know. Like if it did if it was made, it's definitely been lost to time. And honestly, I don't think we need to find that one. Yeah, no, that one can stay dead. Yeah, I, I'm usually pretty preservationist. I have a preservationist mindset when it comes to media and I'm very interested in lost media. Don't think we need to find this one. Yeah, no. If yeah. the first chapter's anything to go yeah. by, it can it can stay dead. Yeah, that and the sequel to Birth of a Nation, which... Ooh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I remember one time I was just, like, looking at, like, Lost Media, and I found out that Birth of a Nation was the first movie to get a sequel. Oh, uh, that is horrific. Yeah, which is depressing. And also, um, it's been lost to time. And it's like, eh, we don't, we don't need to find that one. Yeah, that one... Uh, yeah, I whatever landfill. Yeah, I, I think we could... I think the first one was enough. Yeah. I don't think it needed a sequel. Yeah, it had enough racism yeah, on I, I feel I feel like we get the idea. Like, whatever in the second one, I don't think we're, like can be kind of found in the first one. But whatever. That one can stay lost. And, and so here, like, as uh, Motherwell is quoting from uh, Sarfati's biography, he says, It, dot, 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 so he admitted something, uh, met with a colossal success. The author, efficient journalist that he is, is never lacking, even when he is amusing himself with his screed, in the infall inf infallible flair for what will strike the public. So anyway, it's, she says here, it met with a colossal success. 
And and uh, I remember in the uh, previous episode where we were like looking into Mussolini, I said it was not well received, or at least I didn't think it was. And then I like before like this past week, I was texting you saying that like I think that might be wrong. I think it was actually decently successful, at least. Now I th- I think I was right the first time, and there's a reason for that. Now to my notes. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about Margarita Sarfati. Margarita Sarfati was a propaganda advisor of the National Fascist Party and a mistress of Benito Mussolini. Oh! <laughs> what a great source to quote from. So, so I don't think she's super trustworthy. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think we can trust her word on this one. Yeah. But anyway, she's actually kind of interesting. I didn't write a whole lot about her in my notes, but just as an overview of her, maybe we'll go into her some more at some point. In her earlier years, she was involved in, like, Italy's art community. Um, She was, like, a critic of stuff. Um, But she met Mussolini in 1911, and she published her biography of him in 1924. So she got... And she, like I said, she was also one of his mistresses. So she was, like, real involved in in the fascist party in Italy. Yeah. But um, in 1938, she fled to Argentina and Uruguay because um, she realized shit was getting hot. It's not a great <laughs> idea to stick around with these guys anymore. I think things might be going bad. Clearly not the kind of hot she was looking for with uh, old Benny. Yeah, so she, so she fled to South America for a while, which lots of shitty people fled to South America. The Confederates, yeah. the Nazis, fascists. The- for some reason, South America is just, like, the go-to for yeah, uh, like, why being a bad person fleeing, like, justice or something. Yeah. But uh, she returned to Italy in 1947, and that was it. She didn't really face any repercussions for being involved in a fascist party that <laughs> that <laughs> that was the bad guys in a war. But um, and then she just kind of got back into the art community again. Yeah, just kept on being an art critic. And it's just like no one is going to say anything about this. I'm just imagining like, what if Hitler like came back after, you know, the fucking if the conspiracy theory was true, comes back and just does art after yeah. after World War Two. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, George Bush he did art after his presidency was over. Yeah. Seems to be a theme. Yeah. And God, that was what they used. Like, so many people was like, oh, look at his nice art. It's like, no, no, this guy's a war criminal. Yeah. Yeah, like, what? why would you be praising his art? You don't need to see it. it it's like how people love to praise Hitler's art. They're like, I don't know how he didn't get into art school. I mean, I've seen it. It's good. But also, he's a shitty person. We shouldn't be like, hey, his art is cool. I, I mean, his art is like... On a technical level, I could not do it, but also if I was the uh, head of a prestigious, you know, yeah, it's art uninspired. College, yeah, it, it's very. He does not get perspective right a lot of times. Yeah, it, it's not as good as a lot of people will say it is. Yeah, but at least like on a technical level, like you said, it's good. It's just like, it's just like, but also anyone who's like actively going out of their way to praise yeah, Hitler's you, art. Why are you going out to bat for yeah, fucking Yeah, Adolf? if it comes up in conversation as just like a weird aside, then it's just like, yeah, maybe it's okay. But if like yeah. someone is like going out of their way to do it, it's just like, hmm, what are you, are, what are you doing? Because I don't think this is about his art. <laughs> yeah, there's something else going on here. Like somebody too interested in German tanks. Yeah, or like like lots of people go, it's like, oh, he was like real big into animal rights. It's like, yeah, but no one is, likes Hitler because of animal rights stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, yeah, he did that. And that was not bad. But also, 
the rest of it. <laughs> the rest of the stuff he did. Yeah, some, like, guy snorting cocaine, like, you know, I really like Hitler for his drug abuse. <laughs> With all his own mental superiority, he knows how to stand for the public and the people himself. This is back to the, uh, Mar- uh, yeah. Mar- Sarfati's, uh, an excerpt, the excerpt from her biography of Mussolini. He has, moreover, a great relish for the tragic, as well as for vivid colors and heavy shades. This intuitive communion with the feelings of the mob enables him now, in his capacity as a statesman and head of the government, to keep his finger upon the pulse of the nation. As a story writer, it enabled him to think out the right words and phrases and events and climaxes. He showed that he possessed the common touch. The feuilleton, or the serial, then was a huge success. Every now and again, however, the author got tired of his heroine, Claudia, and felt inclined to kill her off, but Cesare Battisti would implore him not to do so. For heaven's sakes, don't, Battisti would exclaim. The subscriptions are being renewed splendidly, thus balked of his chief victim. Mussolini's homicidal tendencies found scope among the subsidiary characters, and the fates of Claudia and her lover continued to set palpitating the hearts of all the young dressmakers and office clerks and shop assistants and artists artisans of the town and that's the uh, end of uh and uh end of the excerpt from her book subsequently the romance was virtually forgotten what was supposed to be the only remaining copy was discovered a year or two ago by an italian lady who had it bound and presented to the duce much to his delight there exist however other copies in italy and france nothing written by the most conspicuous figure in contemporary europe can fail to be of interest and the present book, revealing the imagination of the youthful Mussolini working at Feverheat, is unquestionably the most interesting of his early writings. So yeah, um, that excerpt from uh, Sarfati's biography of Mussolini is just like is glowing with praise, and it's so obvious that she's that she's just a shell for Mussolini. Yeah, <laughs> and it's just like how how could you um, how could you take this seriously? Yeah, like. Come on, man, be a little bit more, you know, try and penetrate the truth just a little bit here. Yeah. Pun intended, because it's, yeah. Yeah, but anyway, yeah, that's why I think that the idea that it was successful was, in fact, like, true. uh, It was, in fact, not true, and I was right the first time in saying it was not particularly well-received, because this this propagandist says it was, and so I'm not inclined to entrust her very much. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. I don't think she's a, a great source. Yeah. Despite Signora Sarfati's bantering references to this potboiler, the work has its qualities. It is, of course, a ty- of a type of romance which has almost completely passed out of fashion, although that fashion was still flourishing in America as well as in Europe where, when it was written. Hence, the story seems more remote from the present day in style than it is in time. The superheated plot and extravagant language are common to all of its breed, yet the style, by its very violence, acquires a certain distinction as the unconscious expression of an extraordinary temperament. It is characteristic of this shrewd young politician that he chooses for his tale a setting similar to his readers, the proud castle and the miserable P. de Castello of Trent, the Guidicari Road and the Lake of Castel Toblino, the abortive revolution which forms an incident in this tale is to be expected of a man who from his early years has consistently proclaimed, proclaimed himself a revolutionist, and it is notable that these pages are the most realistic and voracious in the book. 
The theme itself, the essentially Italian character of the Trentino, the Germans in Trent are only a colony, seems prophetic in view of Mussolini's recent policy toward that region. So, hmm. he, so he's like, hey, he's a little bit racist towards the Germans, the yeah, German just, population just in Trent. Bit. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> this novel gives little foretaste of the qualities which have since made Mussolini, as orator and controversialist, a very recreator of Italian prose. The short sentences of his recent style, the blunt words, the shocks delivered in rapid succession like hammer blows, the curiously modern rhythmic sweep like the long throbbing of a huge turbine, all this so different from the pattern melody of conventional or erratical and exp expository Italian prose, has brought m a much-needed precision and strength to a language which has unjustly been considered all drowsiness and song. I, I've never heard a language described as all drowsiness and song. Is that, do people describe Italian that way? I don't know. It's a very weird way, though I did have to laugh a little bit at calling uh, the fucking rhythm a long throbbing of a huge turbine. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, it's like, okay, man. Okay, man, I, I understand what you were thinking about when you wrote that. Like, okay, you're not the author here. Yeah. Listen, you're just a translator. Don't try some fucking bullshit on us. But it is not these qualities which appear in the present work. Rather, it is a revolution of personality. A revelation, perhaps, the more authentic because the writing was done at breakneck speed by lamplight after the long day of puttering with proofs and complaints and makeup. Which I mean... Like, I, I understand he was probably also doing other work, and this was like, I, this may have been a weekly thing, because I think Il Popolo was weekly, from what I recall from research. Right. So I can understand, hey, writing it like a chapter a week can be hard. Like, I understand, like, manga artists today, um, yeah. like, struggle with putting out, like, a chapter a week, and they're, like, frequently exhausted. Yeah, I hear that a lot when people uh, talk about it. It's weird how. Uh, the closest example we can think of for fucking Mussolini's work as a writer for some socialist rag is fucking is fucking manga artists and writers. Well, I, th I think I referenced that in like like I referenced like uh, that like in our previous episode. At one point, I brought up like uh, manga like and how it's yeah. like published like weekly and like Shonen Jump and magazines like that. Yeah, it is weird how Japan has just kept that system that Mussolini was fucking doing over in Italy. <laughs> uh, this terrific piling up of magnificent words. God damn it. Just like, stop sucking his dick so much. This prodigal multiplication of metaphors with a, within a single sentence, this passionate hunting out of detail and ever more detail in describing the aspect of a mountainside or the emotions of a guilty lover are perhaps minor ma manifestations of that gargantuan vitality which has finally imposed itself on all of Europe. Just just stop sucking his dick. Yeah, I, I no longer think this guy's a leftist. I think he... Uh, he clearly admires Mussolini just a little bit too much. Yeah, like that's that's absolutely possible. He does seem to be really into Mussolini. And that continues. In literary matters, Mussolini was largely his own schoolmaster. Bullshit. Bullshit. <laughs> that's, that's bullshit. Yeah, no. His self-education was spotty, but it was intense. Signora Sarfati gives a picture of the kind of influence which must have been dominant in molding the style of this novel. Quote, Victor Hugo, she says, was one of the lad's chief educators. 
The scene which she pictures refers to a period when Mussolini was perhaps 12 years old, assistant to his father, the blacksmith in the desolate mountain village of Dovia. The cow, the cow shed of which she speaks is no barn, but the ground floor of the Mussolini family mansion, one of the most imposing in the village. It is a sprawling peasant house, built of rough, hacked hunks of sandstone mortared together with earth and clay. The floor is only stamped mud. There are but two or three windows, and the door is tightly shut. Uh, so, again, just just like just going to her for everything yeah. he knows about Mussolini, which is probably mostly lies. Yeah, who would have thunk that uh, the lover of a fascist dictator would lie? Yeah. Quote, again, back for, to uh, the excerpts from uh, the biography. Quote, a copy of Les Miserables in an Italian translation, atrociously printed and produced, with two columns of small type to the page, and with many of the pages torn and some missing, had made its way somehow to the little village of Dovia, and Jean Valjean, Cosette, and the saintly bishop were to play their part in, the shape, in shaping the character of the boy, who read the book aloud in the cowshed in which, during the winter, the country folk loved to pass the time. They sat around in the dark corners while the oil lamp which hung from the roof sent forth its flickering light and the shadow came and went upon the rafters and the floor. The oxen went on eating their hay and ruminating, jostling up against each other. The women proceeded with their spinning, sewing, and knitting. The men smoked their pipes and drank some drops of the weak wine which comes from pressing the already used grapes. The youths, foregathering with the girls, would now, again give, now and again give out some jesting words or indulge in a playful shove, which is the rustic way of, play, of paying court. The more vigorous the shove, the warmer the feeling which it expresses." In this setting it was, and in the warm atmosphere generated by the breath of the cattle, that Benito read the book, reading on and on until 11 or 12 o'clock, end quote. Which, at, at this point, it's just like, you're not, like, it's not even about the book anymore. Yeah, this is not relevant. This I is was just thinking that for, like, that entire thing. Why would you just be talking about this? Yeah, it's just like, the, it, let's talk about how Mussolini grew up. He loved reading. It's just like, this is just propaganda at this point. Yeah, you're focusing so much time on this, like, oh, this little tidbit about Mussolini's life. Uh, it plays into the book. I, like, what? Yeah, it's no. like, and, and no, and for those of you who might still be confused, no, we did not get into the book proper. We did not get into the actual story. That was just Sarfati describing Mussolini's early life, probably uh, falsely. Yeah, probably just lying through her fucking teeth. Yeah, uh, to continue, or no longer quoting from uh, her biography of Mussolini, no one who has read Victor Hugo at the age of 12 ever quite recovers from his grand, grand, grandiloquence, that's a that's a bad word. Grandiloquence. Grandiloquence. And Shut the it's, fuck up. It's like a combination of grandiose and eloquence. No, that's a bad word. Word sucks. Delete it. Yeah. And his love of the magnificent gesture. The subsequent literary education of Mussolini was essentially the same as essentially of the same casual sort. Having finished the very elementary school of Pradapio Dovia. He went through a normal course in a school in nearby Forlimpopoli. On pennies, he saved by his mother from her earnings as a local school teacher. In this rudimentary schooling, there was little true education. No wonder he fucking ruined the Italian education system. Yeah. It was not until he was discharged from this, his first teaching post in, Gual in Gualtieri for his subversive views and his general quarrelsomeness. At least there's, like, some negative stuff talking, like, about yeah, like, him in this. Finally. Yeah. 
and went as a vagabond to Switzerland, that real education began. It's just like he went as a vagabond, not not to dodge the draft. Which I mean, I'm okay with. Like in principle, I'm against like being opposed to draft the draft. But I don't think Mussolini was. I think he was just. I don't want to go. I don't want to do be in the military. I don't want to do war. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a pacifist. Yeah, famous pacifist Mussolini, <laughs> anti-war activist. In Switzerland, he worked as a hod carrier, wine carter, and finally as a, as expert mason. I I'm going to say bullshit on expert. Yeah, most, expert mason. Yeah, most of the money which he was able to save went to the purchase of secondhand books. Later, having mastered the French language well enough to be able to give private instruction in, in it to other Italians, he acquired the leisure to attend lectures at the University, University of Geneva and the Polytechnic of Zurich, although it does not appear he pursued any formal courses of study. Expelled from one Swiss canton after another for inflammatory po- political speeches or for sheer mendicancy, he was finally obliged to leave the federal territory itself. And and uh, on him learning French, that is true. He did learn French. I believe yeah. he did. Um, I, I forget if I mentioned this in the previous episode. I know it came up in my research where he did like he did uh, get. I don't know if it was a degree, but he did get some kind of certification in learning French. And he tried to get it in German and I believe one other language that I don't remember, and he was unable to. But he did get it in French. That is true. Okay. Yeah. During all of this period, he absorbed some conven- he absorbed the conventional romance of the bookstands, including Dumas Pere and translations of Walter Scott, as well as Italian imitations like those of Tommaso Grassi. Of better literature, he read especially those which were considered revolutionary in tenor, like those of Tolstoy and Romain Roland. As he shar- and he sharpened his wits in interminable discussions and public debates on Marxian theory. Upon his expulsion from Switzerland, he made a foray into Germany, in, cor- in the course of which he devoured some of the German classics, not wisely, perhaps, but gluttonously. The year before he wrote The Cardinal's Mistress was the adventurous year in his literary education. He wrote about this time his... Uh, this, this is a typo. He wrote about this time his essay on the philosophy of force, largely derived from Nietzsche, formulating views which he has often since reiterated and published, curiously enough, in a provincial socialist weekly whose political editor was Arturo Labriola, now one of his bitterest enemies. He wrote an essay on the women in Schiller's William Tell, exalting their anti-Austrian patriotism, obviously addressed to the Italian women of the Austrian Tyrol. He wrote on the poetry of Friedrich Klopstock, the minor Milton of the German Risorgimento, he wrote a violent essay on John Huss, which was to have been have formed part of a history of religion, and um, so on. Like with all this writing stuff that it's mentioned, that was one thing that I kind of I, I I wanted to bring up at one point in the previous episode, but I omitted just for time reasons. Um, he did like at one point try and like write like he or he claimed to have been writing a uh, like uh, a treatise on on philosophy which he said one of his uh uh mistresses tore up which i don't believe and then he was he was going to write an even longer piece on the history of religion which also somehow got destroyed and it's like man it's weird how uh his long works on philosophy that would probably require uh, a lot of intellect would uh get destroyed like that yeah the dog ate his homework don't worry about it (laughs) my mistress Uh, ate my homework (laughs) Yeah, so, I, I, again, probably a lie. He probably didn't actually write these things. 
the one known work of fiction of this period, other than the present romance, is a short story, Nol e vero tutto e pormezzo, which has been published in much abbreviated form in English. It is a morbid and darkly colored tale of the reciprocal emotions of wife and lover following the suicide of the husband. So anyway, this is this is another thing. I actually didn't write this down in my notes, but I remember this. Nol e vero tutto e pormezzo is, um, in English, is actually a phrase that you probably have heard of, and a lot of you listening, if there is anyone listening, because that's, that's a caveat whenever yeah. I mention people listening. is like, <laughs> if anyone is listening. Yeah. Um, it translates to, nothing is true, everything is permitted. And that's a, a common line in the video game franchise, Assassin's Creed. Now, I, as I was looking into this, um, I believe they actually took it from a later work, like the where they actually took the line from. Yeah. Um, uh, like I think it came the book this particular where they took it from was actually from the 30s and I believe was actually critical of Italy uh, or not of Italy of fascism because I know it's like sarcastically uh, dedicated to Mussolini who was still alive <laughs> at the time. So it's it's not so it's it's just kind of funny. But on the topic of this supposed short story, I couldn't find anything on it. Yeah. Like this is the only place where I've seen it get mentioned. So if it did exist, if he did actually write it, it's again lost media. Hmm. So and again, probably not super imperative that we find this yeah. one. Although I'd be more interested in finding this one than say the sequel to Birth of a Nation. Yeah. It can survive in like a dusty library somewhere. Yeah, but uh it. yeah, this is probably lost. But that's that was just one thing I found very interesting. It's just like, wait a minute. No, this is from Assassin's Creed. <laughs> he he does seem to like writing about like weird romances you know yeah. like or not weird but taboo or whatever yeah and finally he wrote a whole history of philosophy uh, or he says he did like i mentioned uh he probably didn't quote all the philosophical systems says signora sarfati were dealt with in it in it critically and analytically and all the new methods were subjected to a nietzsche-like examination the actual manuscript, complete in every detail and ready for the printer, met with the strange fate of destruction at the hands of a young woman of the people who had some right to be jealous of the author. Rummaging about among his papers for evidence, bearing upon her suspicions, she came upon the voluminous notebook. Darting her eyes over its pages, she noted any number of strange names and at once jumped to the conclusion that they were feminine names and that she had lighted upon an amorous correspondence. On the instant, on the instant, the offending document was consigned to the flames, and she was not satisfied until every bit of it had been reduced to ashes. So yeah, there's that. Uh, my one of my mistresses destroyed my 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 magnum opus. Yeah, you know, I'm just such a chad that one of my mistresses, you know, got a bit jealous and destroyed my life's work. Yeah, no, that, that's a hundred percent not true. Yeah, I mean, I believe he probably had numerous mistresses that just seems like the sort of thing he would do but i don't believe that any of them burned his work yeah no i i definitely i that's definitely a lie because there's a lot of things he lied about yeah <laughs> right do writing a very long thing is definitely one of those things he lied about not long afterwards mussolini wrote in il popolo quote the frontier of italy does not end at ala uh, which is the the then frontier station is what it says in, in uh, parentheses, end quote. The Austrian authorities gave him a night in jail and then decreed his deportation to Italy. 
At the frontier, the one he had said would have to be altered, the Austrian police commissioner released him from arrest on his promise that he would take the first train going south. It is said that Mussolini often recalls this incident, and when he speaks of it, it is with a thrill of emotion and gratitude in his voice. When he crossed the frontier, he plunged into Italian politics, and his purely literary career was ended. And that is the end of the introduction by Hiram Motherwell. Um, going over that again, because I did read it, although I was kind of skimming over it, I think he's he's definitely more sympathetic to the fascist party than I originally thought. Yeah, uh, I was giving him the benefit of the doubt at first with, like, the book names and shit, or the other shit he's written. But no, this this seems like glowing praise for the most part. Yeah, but then again, he is basing it off of yeah, the he's stuff a propagandist said. He's basing it off of... The stuff a propagandist said, and that propagandist was sleeping with Mussolini, so... Yeah. But anyway, on to the story proper. So we are on uh, chapter one of The Cardinal's Mistress, and I, I think we can alternate every couple paragraphs, because you yeah. did read this. Although I know the copy that you're reading from is, like, a, like, transcription of the text, and I think it's done by, like, automatic, like, automatically. Yeah. I noticed so that several words... Uh, would just be fucking changed completely. Yeah, or so uh, I I remember looking through it because I did copy from this for my notes. Um, that some of the some stuff was just missing. Yeah. So so yeah, like um, I'll just have you read parts that are just like actually there. But anyway, I'll I'll start though. Chapter one, and there's no chapter title. It's just chapter one. Maybe we should come up with a chapter title by the end of this. Yeah. We'll figure out a chapter title uh, at the end yeah. of each chapter. We, we can do that whenever we read this. We can actually yeah. <laughs> like propose chapter titles. Yeah, uh, I propose bullshit for this one because yeah. it's bad. <laughs> I propose, I propose just like rich people show up. <laughs> yeah, we we'll discuss it more at the end. Yeah. From the tiny churches hidden within the newly budding verdure of the valleys, the even song of Ave Maria floated gently forth and died upon the lake. The riven peaks of the mountains gleamed in the last reflections of the setting sun, and already the first shades of night, descending peacefully upon the forests and the solitary abodes of men, impelled wayfarers to hasten their belated steps to the Guidacare Road. The caress of an invisible hand curled the wavelets of the lake, which with a wary murmur licked the foliage of the ancient willows, forever casting their tresses upon the water. So... That's a description of the environment. I think it's a little bit flowery. It's not bad. Yeah. It's it's. De I've definitely read worse. It, it's not horrible. It's just kind of annoying to read. Yeah, it's just like, it's say. a little bit too long. Yeah, it's like, okay, we could do with a little bit less flower, a little bit less, uh, just it's so many words when it, you can really just write simpler. Yeah. On the shore opposite Castel Toblino, a file of cypresses notched the horizon, and deep in the heavens quivered the stars. In the air there was the indefinable and penetrating exaltation of May, and through all the trembled and through all trembled the echoes of the eternal song which the spring sings every year to life, to the universal life which can never die. And, and I think that's just kind of platitudinous. Yeah. <laughs> the universal life which can never die. Yeah. Like, you don't need to say that. You can just say to the universal life. I think it, I think that would probably be pretty clear that it can't die. Yeah. Carl Emanuel Madruzzo, Cardinal and Archbishop of Trent and Secular Prince of the Trentino, had abandoned the oars of the little bark and seemed enchanted with the suavity of the hour. 
Facing him was Claudia. For a while, the two lovers said no word to one another. The cardinal wore on his head an exquisite cap of black silk, and over his shoulders an ample garment of velvet upon which gleamed the silver clasps of his belt. Um, so, we're introduced to our characters, finally. Woo! I God, say finally. It's not, it's not that fun. Yeah, it's not... It, he introduces them quickly enough. Yeah. A month of sojourn in the castle had not been benefited the health had not benefited the health of the prince. He had not been able to rest as he had intended. Too many cares tormented him. His soul was shaken by too many temp- tempests. The wrinkles of his brow had become deeper. The nose, crooked in the middle, had become sharper. His large and widely opened eyes wore a look of melancholy. His blonde hair fell in thinning locks over his temples. His whole figure was stooped, not from old age, but beneath the weight of an ancient burning sorrow. Claudia was leaning slightly over one side of the bark and had immersed her hand in the water to enjoy its freshness. Beneath her silken robe was visible the provocative outline of her body, and her white face gleamed beneath her black tresses. Her half-closed uh, closed eyes understood the sorcery of poisonous passions. So, we got a little bit of uh, r slash men writing women in there. Yeah. It's not the worst. There's, There's def- worse. Stephen King has written Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, no, I was actually looking through r slash men writing women in response to this. And yeah, there was, like, Stephen King definitely d- came up a lot. And it's just like, ooh, that's bad yeah. from what I saw. But it's just like, not the worst, but it's just like, it's just like, come on, man. Yeah, it... It's passably not that bad. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't help that, like, the 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 priest is described as looking not that great. It's just like, yeah. this not great looking guy was, like, had this hot chick as a yeah. girlfriend. It's just like, hmm. I do appreciate that he described uh, the fucking cardinal so much more than he described yeah. her. <laughs> yes. It's so true. <laughs> I, normally, that would be, like, the opposite, right? Yeah. But no, uh, he just needed to say, yeah, she's hot. Yeah. What the fuck? I don't care. Yeah, yeah it gave a lot a big description of, of like his face and it's just like he's like he's definitely has a lot going on. He's like got a, like a lot of burdens. And then for her it's like her she stuck her hand in the water. She had she was curvy and she had black hair and a white face. Yeah. You you just have to uh the only thing you really can imagine about her is her body. Yeah. Her, but also, her half-closed uh, closed eyes understood the sorcery of poisonous passions. Yeah, which is a nonsense statement. Yeah. And, and I will say this, I don't know how much of this is Mussolini, and how much of this is Motherwell writing, like or translating. Yeah, that's fair. Motherwell could just be a shitty translator. Yeah, where he's just like, he's choosing, like, intentionally choosing fancier words. Yeah, that is, like, just a sort of thing when you read a lot of uh, translation works. Yeah. Um, So, do you want to continue from here? Uh, Sure, yeah. The next day, the Cardinal would be obliged to return to Trent, and this would... uh, That... It fucks up on the... Okay, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll continue. It and th- finally fucked up. It was actually fine from while <laughs> you were reading. <laughs> and this was the last excursion which the two lovers would make together. The imminence of the parting saddened them. Their spirits, their spirits were invaded by presentiments of woe. In the future, perhaps, would come the fulfillment of some obscure menace. Okay, it's fine for a while here. Uh, Emmanuel raised his head, met the gaze of Claudia, and decided to speak. The bark rode motionless in the midst of the lake beneath the shades of night. The castle, with its few lighted windows, could scarcely be distinguished. Tomorrow, 
I shall return to Trent, said the cardinal with a slight trembling of the voice. You will remain here. Claudia made a quick gesture of surprise, but Emmanuel continued. It is necessary. Tomorrow, Donna Maria of Spain will depart. Was her departure not fixed for the end of June? asked Claudia. That is true, but certain events have precipitated matters. This afternoon, Don Benizio came to tell me of the unexpected decision. Tomorrow, I dare not fail to do the honors of the pages summoned the peasants to the boulevard, the boulevard of Gardolo. I, I think I think some something got screwed up there. Unless, oh yeah. Um, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, no, fix what I said then. Yeah, I, I think I think a lot got cut off there because Gardolo doesn't come up till later. But it's like um, this afternoon, Don Benizio came to tell me of the unexpected. Oh yeah, decision. the entire page four is just yeah. not there. Yeah, tomorrow I dare not to fail to do the honors in the noble fashion which the traditions of my race require. Uh, yeah, I apologize for that. Like. Shit, we're we're professionals here. <laughs> we're very professional, uh, yeah. which is why I did not check the page number. Yeah, it just skips page four entirely. Yeah, look, uh, page three there, page three, and then scroll down page five. <laughs> There's just no page four. Okay, yeah, that's a problem. I did think it sounded a bit weird, but I was like, okay. Yeah, well, it skips to like the end of page four. Like the first paragraph, like the last paragraph on page four, which goes on to page five. Uh, but yeah. Oh, and also I'm going to need to borrow it again because I'm on archive.org and it allows me to borrow things for an hour and then it expires and it has expired. Anyway, I've just renewed my the uh, the loan. And having pronounced these words, Emmanuel returned in imagination to a time five months before. So the rest of the chapter is going to be a flashback and I've just noticed something. Claudia has said one line. <laughs> she she just she just asked him like whether like um like wasn't wasn't Donna Maria supposed to leave later? Why is she leaving now? That was kind of it. <laughs> Very active participant in this romance. Yeah, men writing women. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. In a time five months before when Anna Maria arrived in Trent. It was but a few days before Christmas of the year 1648 that the advance guard of the prince, princely cortege touched Italian soil a little beyond San Michel. Anna Maria, daughter of the Emperor Ferdinand III, King of Austria, Anna Maria, daughter of the Emperor Ferdinand III, King of Austria, journeyed, journeyed accompanied by her brother Ferdinand, King of Hungary and Bohemia, by Cardinal de Anela, Archbishop of Prague, by Prince de, de Arensberg, by the Duke of Terranova, by the Margrave of Bada, and by many other princes, cavaliers, and ladies, and was bound for Spain, where she was to wed Philip IV. Emmanuel Madruzo, Bishop of Trent, went out to meet her with a suite of 500 gentlemen, splendidly attired in rich and bizarre liveries. At Gardolo, and at Gardolo, where the two magnificent processions met, Emmanuel kissed the hand of the future queen of Spain and offered her hospitality in the castle, castle of Bernard Clesio, which the first Madruzzi had transformed into a residence worthy of a papal imperial court. So we're just, this is just a bunch of like nobles showing up to a wedding. Like, yeah, what what's kind of the point here? This like what what does this have to do with the like the like the romance? Between yeah. Claudia and uh, Emmanuel. Yeah, no, this is not necessary. Just say, yeah, and then some rich people showed up. Yeah, and um, 
And also just like we get in Emmanuel got to kiss the hand of the future queen. It's just like, come on, man. It's clear that he's just an, a self-insert. Yeah. And we're not even like like halfway through the first chapter. It's pretty bad. In the clear and cool morning air of December, the trumpets of the horsemen and the songs of the pages summoned the peasants to the boulevard of Gardolo. They uncovered their heads with gestures of profound humility at the passing of the coach in which the young princess sat, dreaming of future honors and grandeur, and tasting in advance the joy of the impending nuptials. The people of, Tre of the Trentino received the future queen of Spain with high festival. Oh good, I'm glad she's having a good time. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> at the first appearance of the procession, La Renga, the historical bell of patiently chiseled bronze began to resound continuously in the high tower of the fortifications the bells of the other towers responded and in the serene sky serene as only an italian sky can be shut the fuck up uh, it's the sky <laughs> and into all the valleys there penetrated the long rever reverberations of the knelling until it seemed that they might call to life the echo sleeping beneath the wintry mist of the mountains and wake the souls of the dead the artillery of the castle boomed in recurrent volleys that is a lot to just say yeah the bells were ringing yeah in short the entire population of trent was in the streets the merchants closed their shops, the artisans their workrooms, the professional men their studios. The houses were emptied and women and children appeared in the doorways. Eager questions scurried from mouth to mouth, and every reply was accompanied and listened to with loud cries of admiration. And as though by a tacit sign of understanding, the crowd surged towards the German section. Oh boy! <laughs> yeah, the, the, the place where we, we force all the German people to yeah. live. In the San Martino quarter and took its place on either side of the road in which, fat in the distance, the iron... Fat? It's it's far. It's far. A, transcription oh, got tra fucked up. <laughs> fat in the distance. Uh, difference between fat people hate and far people hate. Yeah. Uh, far in the distance, the iron beat of horses' hoofs, the dazzling glitter of cuirasses, cuirasses. Uh, a flash of helmets and picks and halberds, and the crackling of arquebusades arquebuses in volleys announced the sovereign guest so yeah just it, it was a big party everyone was super happy that these that these nobles showed up for this wedding so then they rampaged in the german quarter yeah <laughs> oh god uh, yeah just like just like it's subtle but it's unnecessary racism yeah just like okay i see what's going on here they're so happy that their big Italian shit is going on that they're going to just go stand in the German quarter for yeah. a while. <laughs> At the gate of the city, the procession stopped to organize its triumphal pump. Eight horsemen, horsemen, not horsemen, <laughs> clad in white, rode ahead. They wore no cuirasses and carried no arms. On each breast was a huge red cross. Not far behind followed the soldiers of the escort the coach of Anna Maria, drawn by four richly caparisoned horses. Yeah. That's a word. Yeah. That's, not a, that's not a word you see very often. Yeah. I, was, can, I can look that up real quick. Yeah, sure. Be I, I'm curious. Of a horse, to be decked out in rich decorative coverings. Okay. To be decked out. <laughs> decked out. Yeah, I'm sure Mussolini's writing decked yeah. out. Yeah. It's oh, up. man. I, the, it, the horses, they were decked out. Yeah. <laughs> was surrounded by ladies of the suite, by high dignitaries of the court, 
by the nobility and clergy of Bohemia, Hungary, and the Trentino. Uh, following after this compact group, which contained descendants of all the noblest races of Europe. Ooh. Ew. <laughs> yeah, Ooh. bad. Yeah, don't like that phrasing. Come on, Mussolini, you're still supposed to be a socialist here. Uh, from the furrowed lands of the Danube to the sea-washed plains of the Manzanare, from the limitless steppes of Hungary to the green hills of Bohemia, from the snowy peaks to the fertile plains of Eridano, rode an immense troop of horsemen, superb in their burnished steel armor. My God, he just has to describe fucking everything. Yeah, and it's just like, yes, we get it. Lots of people had armor on. Yeah, you've he mentioned cuirasses like 40 times. Yeah, it's just like, no, this is ridiculous. Choose a new word, at least. At least here he chose armor, but I'm not very impressed. Uh, they were the veterans of the last war, which had just been ended with universe, with the universal peace of Munster. Soldiers of all tongues, the heroes of many a cavalry charge, now reduced to purely decorative functions, since the romantic and ideal meaning which once had been ascribed to them had vanished under under the diabolical irony of Cervantes the poet. Are, is he referencing uh, Don Quixote there? I believe so. I I wasn't entirely sure, but I mean, it it would make sense. Yeah, it does make sense i am a bit confused at what he means to say by that because don quixote wasn't like a soldier he was just a insane guy who pretended to be a knight yeah. after knights no longer existed well, i don't know if he's referencing don quixote specifically but he, yeah uh, just like cervantes miguel de cervantes yeah also just for reference i just looked this up right now but uh when he mentions like the last war that ended with the universal peace of Munster, uh, in 1648, there was the, though there's two things that actually happened in 1648. Um, the peace of Munster in January of 1648, uh, which ended the 80 years war between the Dutch Republic and Spain and the treaty of Munster, which happened in October, 1648, which ended the 30 years war between France and the Holy Roman empire. I think it's that first one though, because this does take place in Spain. Right, yeah. Like, from what it looks like. So, I, I'd imagine it's that first one. But it's just like, that's interesting that twice in the same year, there were two, like, peace agreements made in Munster. Yeah. <laughs> that's a bit funny. Yeah. It's like, oh, I guess Munster is the place to make peace agreements. Yeah. Hey, you know where we should make peace? Fucking Munster. <laughs> yeah. It, it just really uh, has a great ring to it. I mean, we'll, ha we'll, we'll have Munster cheese to celebrate. Yeah. I'm assuming that's the Munster in Germany and not the one in Ireland. I would... Uh, that's a good question. Uh, because I know there's a... Well, I don't know how to pronounce either of them, but... Uh, I believe there's Munster in Germany, which is what I'm guessing is where the piece was. I, because I can't imagine all these hoity-toity uh, noble folk yeah, this, going the, to Ireland willingly. Yeah, this is, this is definitely in Germany, or what is now Germany. Because it's like, definitely wasn't Germany back then. Yeah. <laughs> At least that first one was. That's the second one. I believe is. Yeah, it looks like it's the same place. Yeah, I do. It would be weird if they chose the Irish one. Just yeah. Because <laughs> they still didn't really consider them uh, people yet. Yep. All right. Uh, I don't know how much more you have before it glitches out again. Um, oh, it looks like you got a decent amount, actually. I have a few paragraphs, and then suddenly... 
it just devolves. Oh yeah, I see it breaks up. Oh god, that gets real bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the procession ended with a long file of baggage trains, and behind pressed the people who watched the parade with admiring eyes. The cries of the crowd, who, as always, forgot their daily misery in this vision of splendor, were from time to time drowned by the notes of a horn into which a giant horseman from Bohemia was blowing with all the strength of his lungs. Yeah, I get it. The, the pr procession's great. Yeah. Love it. Can, yeah. can we have uh, characters back, Yeah, can we, can we go back to the romance? Like, I can't, I can't imagine that, like, a lot of people were interested to see where this story went, because it's like, yeah. hey, this is the grand romance between these two people, and they barely get mentioned. And chapter one has, like, a total of, like, five lines spoken between them, and only one for the woman. Yeah, and then it just goes into a flashback of this, like, procession of nobles, and lots of peasants being like, oh, great, the nobles are here. Yeah, it's not a compelling hook. Yeah. It really isn't. Yeah, so I, I think Sarfati was lying when she said it was popular. Yeah, maybe later on he got better, because right now this is shit. Well, I don't think he wrote anything after this. <laughs> I, I think this is, like, his, or I mean, like, any nonfiction stuff. He obviously wrote, like, speeches and, like, political shit. Yeah. Fucking idiot. <laughs> yeah, but I, I don't think he wrote any nonfiction, or fiction, I should say. Yeah. Not nonfiction. Yeah. Or at least later on in, like, the serial, maybe it got better. Yeah, maybe. You know? I don't know. I hope so. Yeah, because otherwise this is going to suck. Yeah, this, would, this will really suck if he does not improve. Emmanuel Madruzo now recalled every particular of this ceremony. He recalled the gaiety of the Trentine people, the addresses of the cha Chamberlains, the brief phrases of Anna Maria, the ceremony in the cathedral, the evening illumination of the city. Anna had much moved by the splendor of her reception. It's just like, we get it. Yes. It's just like, we, the, what does this have to do with the plot? What is this setting up? Yeah. It's, Somebody tell me. Yeah, this is going nowhere. And, it, and because, like, from what I see from your transcription, it just all goes to shit. Like, yeah. it, it looks like, uh, like, some, like, like, SNES era RPG where you're, like, talking to, like, a robot and it's oh, just yeah. glitching out. <laughs> it's like, and then it's like you can't make it out so yeah i'm I'm just gonna pick it up for a while um i can keep going a little bit i have uh, a bit no, more no because like because like it starts devolving like in the middle of the next paragraph oh yeah i see yeah so um at some point we'll pick it up you can pick up again okay i, th I think like a couple of pages like we'll, yeah. we'll figure it out um now I need to actually figure out where you were. Uh, then came long winter weeks. Okay. Then came long winter weeks, which were wild away in entertainments, hunts, and banquets, not inferior though to those of Lucullus. Yeah, reference some obscure Roman. Yeah. Yeah, do it. Babe. Yeah, there's another reference a bit later that I actually did look into because I was like, what is this word? Three months after the entrance of Anna Maria in Trent, no fewer than five princes were lodged in the castle. The Queen Bride, the King of Hungary, the Archduke Ferdinand Karl with Archduchess his cons which the with the Archduchess as his consort, the Archduke Franz Sig Sigismund, the Bishop of Augusta, and the Duke of Mantua. Few courts in Europe could at that time rival the House of Madruso. Emmanuel the last had had the Masonism Masonism uh, which that's the one where I think it was a reference to uh, another uh, Roman guy. 
um, may be referring to Gaius Masonus, a friend and advisor of Caesar, Caesar Augustus. Hmm. I'm not entirely sure, but that's that's the only thing that I could think of when I looked up what that word was. It's probably like he probably did something stupid, so now he has a word named after yeah. him that nobody uses yeah. anymore. Had the Masonism and the prodigality of the lords who governed the Italian cities in the dawn of the Renaissance. He squandered his wealth, since in him the race would be extinguished and the principate left without an heir. Of what use to save money in anticipation of a future which would never be? It was better to live without worrying. Rejoice and forget. Which, at this point, he, Mussolini is just directly uh, inserting his opinions. Yeah. <laughs> which, I mean, you could do that in writing. There's nothing wrong with that. But the way he's doing it is just kind of blunt. Actually, is. is this is this his opinions or is it just is he writing just he might just be writing what this character's opinions are, but at the same yeah. time I don't yeah, no, I, I think it is about Emmanuel, but also it's just like it's not a whole lot relevant. Yeah. Then for twenty years the passion of love had seized him with such volume that he cursed the principate and despised the purple of of the cardinalate. He loved Claudia. <laughs> this relation was universally known. Uh, actually, I just want to add real quick. It's just like, it like, he just, it just now mentions he loved Claudia. It's just like in that whole description of what was happening, she didn't come up until just now. Yeah, like, and now and now it's just like, I I am going to renounce everything that I am associated with because I love this woman who has just now been mentioned as and as part of this flashback. Yeah, like. There's no reason for why, either. She had one line, and we barely know what she looks yeah, like. Yeah, we know that she stuck her hand in water, is curvy, and has a white face and black hair. Yeah. Great yeah. Uh, descriptions of women, yeah. Mr. Benito. Yeah. This relation was universally known, and for the most part condemned, and regarded as a serious sin. The spirit of Emmanuel Madruzzo, naturally inclined to sentiments of virtue inherited from his maternal ancestors, had long been the theater of a struggle between two opposing sentiments, the duties of the Principate and the dig dignity of the Purple on the one hand, and on the other, his love for Claudia. <laughs> the power of boaters is stronger. <laughs> it's just like... It's just like... Uh, like uh, there are two equally uh, important things all of my duties and everything i've done so far in my life and this woman who has just now been mentioned who i could probably not describe in a sentence it's like it's kind of like a hallmark movie one of those hallmark christmas movies oh, yeah. where like uh, this woman who has a job who, like ends up in this small town and she's and she's like i'm going to give up my entire life to be with this man yeah, <laughs> it's like I, I have like this this full time job. I have a career. I'm gonna give it all up so I could be this housewife. It reminds me of like the like Hallmark subgenre where it's like the king of some weird country that doesn't actually exist, and then just marrying down with some random woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's always like, no, we could never be together. For I am going to be the king, and you are. Uh, some peasant. I don't even really and, fucking know. And if know. I was there, i just, like, in the back, I'd be just like, just fuck her! No one cares about monarchs anymore! Yeah, just get it over with. Just, you're the king. Uh, if you're not married, this is not particularly controversial. People did it all the time. Yeah, also, I just screamed right into the microphone when I did yeah. that. 
we'll have to work on the audio. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll figure out the audio normalization. Again, we don't know how to make a podcast. Between them, he was lashed into one of those tragic passions which recommends lives. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's clear. It's just like, random woman, my, enti- my entire life leading up until this point. Yeah. A woman who he has barely described yet. We know nothing about her. Yeah. During the spring in which the court of Trent entertained the most illustrious and powerful personages of Europe, the life of the castle and of Trent was intense and tumultuous. Emmanuel sought to numb himself in the hope of calming the inner struggle, which was tearing him to pieces. He failed. (laughs) Good to know. Does he hate writing dialogue this much? Yeah, there. Oh, there hasn't been any dialogue aside from like that one brief yeah. exchange at the beginning. It's all been description. Yeah, it, this is not good writing. Yeah, at least we get the he fail. It's like okay, I at least understand what the hook is. Yeah, what the driving finally po- a hook. What the driving point of the novel is, but at the same time, it took so long to get there through so much pointless bullshit. Yeah, I. I was not reading it for this podcast. I would have tapped out very early on. Yeah, I know. It's just like, like so much of this could have been shortened down to they met at the wedding of the like between the like uh, Anna Maria and the king. Yeah, you could have really cut out like the majority of this chapter. Yeah, it's just like I mean, you could have spent like a couple pages describing it, but. This is too much. I mean, even a couple pages was excruciating. I would say give it a few paragraphs and then you're good. This is so unnecessary. By the end of April, he had obliged Claudia to leave. He feared for her life, since it was threatened by a conspiracy, which it was said had been formed among the ecclesiastics hostile to the house of the Madruso. It's like, okay, now there's just this conspiracy? We don't even know who this woman is. Yeah, why specifically would there be a conspiracy against her and not him? Yeah, I know. Well, I guess he's important, but at the same time... Well, yeah, that's even more reason to kill him instead. They're hostile to his house. Yeah, but it's just like, we don't know who this woman is. Uh, this is great. Yeah. She had retire- retired to, cast- to Castel Toblino, guarded and defended by a group of ruffians in whom Emmanuel placed the utmost confidence. Yeah, tra- trust those ruffians. Yeah. Ruffians are notoriously very trustworthy. Yeah. If I wanted to describe someone I could trust, without exception, it would be someone I would describe as a ruffian. Yeah. Hello, ruffians. Guard this this beautiful woman in this castle all by herself. Yeah. Nothing bad will happen. You won't. I trust you won't do anything bad to her. I mean, presumably beautiful, because we barely got a fucking yeah. description. Yeah. But with with but within a few days, Emmanuel himself had joined her at Castel Castel Toblino. So it's just like it's just like here, guard this woman away from me. Ah, oh, never mind. I'm coming. It's just like it's just like pre, like presented and immediately just discarded. This yeah. whole point. The afternoon following the conversation between Claudia and her prince, Anna Maria of Spain left Trent. Emmanuel had wished to give the, to the departure. Uh, as to the arrival, a character of solemnity. While the long procession mended its way through the Borgo Nuovo in the direction of Verona, the bells rang in unison, and the artillery fired salutes from the castle. But the people who in December had fallen over one another to acclaim the royal guest were now absent. The sojourn of Anna had emptied the coffers of the Principate. The the Principate. The Principate. I, I've been saying Principate with, like, a C-H. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's, like, 
It's either Principit or Principit. I don't think it's Principit. That would be like the Latin pronunciation, but I have yeah. no idea. I know we had like a similar issue with like one of the names before, like in the previous episode. Yeah. I know with like uh, Batisti, I've been saying Cesare because that's what I—that's how it's pronounced in Assassin's Creed. Right. Uh, I'm just gonna say Principit because fuck pronunciation, I guess. Yep. Uh, and had obliged the cardinal to impose new and odious taxes, which bore upon all classes of society. The quarrels between the Trentini and the Spaniards of the Queen's suite were frequent and brought discord and mourning to many families. The discontent, augmented by more remote causes, became evident. The counselors of the prince, among whom Claudia's father, Ludovico Particella, was predominant. Feared an outburst of popular... This sentence was phrased weird. Uh, Was predominant. Feared an outburst of popular wrath. Yeah, I, I get it. The, like the just the way the clauses are spaced out are, are yeah. weird. The counselors of the prince uh, feared an outburst of popular wrath is like how it is, but it's just like the counselors of the prince, among whom Claudia's father Ludovico Particella was predominant, feared an outburst of popular wrath. It's just like, especially like that last one was was predominant. Yeah, yeah. It's just like or like. Cut out the name, just like among whom Claudia's father was predominant. Yeah, that's yeah. a shit line. Yeah, it, it like there's just too many commas. Whatever. His shit writing aside, at the time of the Great Council, the poor of the town had been confined in the quarter below the castle in order that the sight of their wretchedness might not disturb the digestions of the 216 bishops, the 22 archbishops. And the five legates and the two cardinals, the three patriarchs, my God, uh, and the innumerable band of minor priests who discussed Catholic theology, uh, M. Santa Maria Maggiore, yeah. Maggiore, and a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> but now misery knocked at the doors and forced in sick men, women, and children to go begging in the alleys i'm assuming oh this says valleys valleys yeah uh it's weird here uh it did fuck up a lot in that okay it did yeah i I noticed you struggling a little bit yeah it was therefore with a sigh of relief that the city watched the queen depart emmanuel madruzzo accompanied her as far as Matarello. here amid great commotion on the part of the personages of the suite the final farewells were said anna after a brief sojourn I hate that word, he uses it frequently, at Roberto, would continue her journey to Madrid, where Philip IV was waiting to lead her to the altar. And that is the end of chapter one. Yeah! Oh, we didn't learn fucking anything about the main characters. So, as for this chapter's title, uh, I'm going to call this one unnecessary. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to call it I'm going to call it rich people celebrate and poor people are also there sometimes. Yeah. Rich, rich people celebrate big characters, barely there. They are not present yeah, at no. all. Yeah. No, like the, like we get one line of dialogue from Claudia and like, we know that she showed up. I guess we get a little bit of information about her. It's just like, um, yeah. her father was a predominant counselor for the prince, but it's just like, that's still not a whole lot of information. Like, who is she? Yeah. Like we have some facts about her. We don't have her. 
There's no character there. Yeah, no, she exists to be the main love interest. The love interest of the main. She character. might as well be a silhouette with a question mark. She's in it. not a character. She's a plot point right now. Yeah, I, she's not even a plot point really. She just is on words on the page. Yeah, I, I'm hoping that it gets better for her, but its outlook is not great right yeah. now. Yeah, I'm just gonna say it right now. There is no plot. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> just like. We know that their love is forbidden. Yeah. But it doesn't seem like like how that's like going to be like an impact yeah. on the story is like unclear. Yeah. We know that there's a conspiracy to kill Claudia for some reason. Which is weird. Kill the guy instead. He's the one you're beefing with. Yeah. Uh but so far there are two things. Two things that we really know for sure. One, their love is forbidden. Two, uh <laughs> so fucking stupid i'm sorry uh two that it is known okay so the love is forbidden and people know about it it's open it's an open affair and that's basically the extent of our knowledge besides character names yep and we know that they met at a wedding which was described way too much yeah like what this was a flashback too yeah. So we don't even real the plot was not moved forward. Yeah, it was like what it was like five months prior, like this flashback. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I don't know. Um, there's. Uh, yeah, five months before. Yeah. Reading the introduction, one would expect it to be some fantastic work here, but it really isn't. Yeah, no, like, we got like nothing. Like we just know that there there is this this affair that's forbidden, and that's the I like okay. That's an interesting like that's an interesting hook. You can premise. make that in yeah. That premise is interesting. You can do a lot with that, but it just they it, nothing happened. We just yeah. know that it exists. In, I would say the only thing that would genuinely interest me, having to, to like learn more about is the fact that, like, the affair is known. People know it's happening. That's the only real unique thing. It's the only real thing that's been presented. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, I would have liked to know how they met, because I don't think it even describes how they met. It doesn't. It, yeah. it says, and then he fell in love with Claudia. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's just like, he like he was in love with Claudia. It's just like, what? what yeah. Where did this lady come from? It, it's out of left field, which is weird because this is this this is the core of what the story is. The core of your story should not come out of left field. Yeah, I know, and it's just like it's it's not good so far. It's pretty bad. It's I, really bad. Yeah, I I can't imagine that this was popular. I know like writing has changed over time because like you go back and like read lots of like like old literature and it's just bad. <laughs> yeah, like. There's a lot of good old literature. Like, I actually really love reading the Iliad and the Odyssey. Yeah. However, uh, those have, like, compelling stories that they introduce. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, like, not. Yeah, like, I don't know a whole lot about the Iliad, but I know at least with the Odyssey, it's just, like, it's, a, it's an adventure. Yeah. It's a, it's a fucked up adventure where, like, like this entire, this guy's entire crew gets killed or, like, yeah. some shit happens to them. Odysseus is spending ten years also trying he, to get back home. Also, he's an asshole. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, but it's 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 an adventure. It's interesting. Yeah. Like, uh, like some of it, like, like, 
some of the like character like development might not be great, but it's it's an adventure story, and that's what's the interesting part about this. The like it doesn't need to be character driven; it's like plot driven. Yeah. Whereas, Whereas this is neither. Yeah, the, it's a po- it should be character driven. That's what I would. That's imagine. what a romance is. Yeah, romance, especially like like forbidden romances, are are character driven. And this doesn't have any character in it. Yes. There's an exchange of dialogue at the beginning, and then the description is like, they loved each other. Or like, yeah. he loved her, and that's it. So far, the most concrete thing I can think of about this is we learned what he looked like. Yeah. We didn't even really learn what she looked like. We just got a description of her body. Yeah. And she Not has even a her face. <laughs> we got the color of her face. Yeah, it's white. <laughs> yeah. She stuck her hand in water, though, so she did something. Oh, yeah, that's very active participation yeah. in the plot. I, I'm wondering if we're going to see more men writing women. Probably. Yeah. I don't know. I want to know how bad it gets, because we know that Mussolini abused women, and he was not great to women. Yeah. So I, I have to imagine that there's going to be some misogyny in this. Yeah. For, for what it is... At least here at the start, not that bad <laughs> in terms of like misogyny. It I'm guessing, I'm actually hoping because at least then there's something I can actually grasp onto in this goddamn story. I'm there's going to be misogyny in it. Yeah, we're I, gonna get to it. I, I'm not gonna read any of the next chapter, but I'm just gonna check to see how far, how long it takes before. Yeah, see how we, long it takes to get dialogue. Yeah, that's what I was exactly what I was gonna check. Uh, oh my god oh okay so let's see uh the first dialogue appears on page 18 and there's not a whole lot of dialogue it's really not a whole lot it's mostly someone calling out to someone else um and that the chapter starts on page 12 the first dialogue of the chapter is on page 18 so like six pages in that's not great this is like middle school level you know what? I do believe he taught himself now. I do believe he taught himself. <laughs> Maybe Sephardi wasn't wrong on that. Yeah, but oh, so far, not great. Not great. But anyway, I'm looking forward to reading this just because I want to know how bad it is. Yeah. I, it's actually, reading it out loud was a lot worse than it, like when I was reading it to oh, myself. Yeah. Reading it to myself, it was painful, but it wasn't this painful. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it's because at one point I shut my brain off with just trying to, like, like with... Because there's nothing there. You're yeah, just, just getting like, descriptions. Didn't... Okay, when, when's shit gonna happen? Oh, the chapter's over. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, it was a short chapter. It was, like, not too short, but it's just, like, in my head it was short because nothing fucking happened. Yeah, because you're kind of mindlessly scrolling through the first time because it's just... There's nothing to actually, like, read there. You're just hearing about how great this wedding was, I guess not really relevant at all yeah but anyway if i if i was someone who was uh subscribed to il popolo back then i wouldn't and i read this i would not be interested in reading the i'm the fucking tearing it. up my subscription yeah uh well i don't know maybe i like depending on like what else is in there i might keep my subscription but i'm not definitely not reading this again like yeah. this serial like when i see oh mussolini's serial i'm like eh, i can skip that part yeah just fucking uh, where does it go okay Whoop. Yep. <laughs> yeah, so current review bad. Yeah. Um uh, I would give this like a 2 out of 10. Yeah, it's it's pretty bad. There but, there was some nice descriptions in there at some points that weren't overbearing. Few and far between. 
Yeah. But um, it is kind of funny, though. Uh, I took a creative writing class in college. Uh, the critique I got was the exact opposite of the one I would give Mussolini, which was that I write too much dialogue. <laughs> it, Mussolini needs to write dialogue. Yeah. Th that is... It would make it so much more interesting. Yep, but he did not. He ju It was just descriptions of stuff that is not even relevant to the plot. Yep. But anyway, I think that'll do it for this episode. This has so far been our longest recording session yet. We're over an hour and a half in. Oh, Jesus Christ. Although a lot of that was us, like, fucking up and, like, trying to figure out, oh, what can Jake actually read? Yeah. And we'll figure out a solution to that. Maybe I'll yeah. we'll take, like, screenshots of it so you can just use that yeah, instead. Maybe I can have my laptop over uh, yeah, and read it from there. Maybe. We'll figure shit out. Again, we're not professionals. Of course we're professionals. Yeah, like, what do you mean? <laughs> I want to do this for a living. So anyway, that'll that'll do it for this episode. Um, we, like, as always, we are on Twitter at um, at HTLWW underscore pod. You can reach us there. Um, so far, it's mostly just me posting links to the new episodes as they come out, which Red Circle makes that hard because like finding the actual proper link, because I remember one time I, I went to, I clicked like the share button to get the link and it just linked me to like the main page of the podcast, even though was, I did it for like the episode and I had to like delete like three tweets before I got like the actual link. <laughs> I think you told me about that, although uh, you didn't tell me how much. Yeah, it was it was a pain in the ass. Um, we also have a, we have an email, uh, how the left was one pod at gmail.com. Uh, we are also, we also have a Patreon now. I, we had it last week as well, but I forgot to mention it. Also, speaking of weeks, we're finally a weekly podcast and not bi-weekly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully we can maintain that and shit won't happen, but whatever. We have a Patreon. Um, don't feel obligated to give at all. Um, yeah. we like, so Jake and I talked about this. We're kind of like, because we're communists, we're yeah. Marxist Leninists, we're kind of against advertisements in general. Yeah. Yeah. Like, unless it's like for something that like is actually like a decent product and like the company is like Communist not party membership <laughs> and the company is not like massively <laughs> shitty then maybe, but probably not. I, I kind of don't want to do ads. I would really rather not. Yeah, pro almost certainly not. Like, unless there's like, like, oh, this is like, this company is like really good. They treat their workers well. It's, it's run by the workers. It's a good product. Uh, then maybe, then maybe. Yeah. But that's not going to happen. <laughs> it really isn't. That, do that doesn't exist. Yeah. I also don't really believe in paywalling stuff either with the Patreon because it's just like, this is supposed to be educational. This is supposed to yeah. be like, uh, we think that what we're talking about is important. Well, maybe not this episode. This episode was not yeah, as important. This episode to... was just fun. Yeah. This, this episode was not as critical to learning about fascism and how to fight it. But you know, it's it, sometimes it's interesting to get into the mindset of fascists or would be fascists. But yeah. again, I don't believe in paywalling stuff a whole lot. So right now there's just one tier for a dollar. Which is just, it, I think it just says support the show right now. I should probably change that to say, hey, we'll read your name on there or like on during the recording. Yeah. We could have them choose thumbnails if we could make thumbnails. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it'll be like, maybe I'll add like a second tier. Like one tier is just like, hey, we read your name and a second tier at like a bit more, which is like, hey, we will read your name every episode. Something like that. You're a producer or whatever. Yeah, the fuck. You produce the show. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those things where it's just like, yeah, I, I, I guess kind of. It's like you, like, the show ex can continue because 
of yeah. your support. So I guess that makes you a producer, but at the same time, it's just like you just give money. But yeah. but whatever, we have a Patreon. Please don't feel f- obligated to give. If don't you, even look at it, really. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's nothing there right now. Um, this is just something that we do for right now for fun. Well, we again, we think it's important to some extent. Yeah. But also, yeah, uh, and also just like yeah. times are hard. Like shit's expensive. Yeah. So unless you have like a decent amount of disposable income, don't give, please. <laughs> just if you feel like it, go ahead. Uh, really don't fucking worry about it. Yep. Yeah, that's about it. That's about what I have to say. Um, yeah. We're on Slapbook. Slapbook, yeah! And I think that'll do it for this episode. Um, so until next time, which will hopefully be next week. Also, just, I guess I'll add this right now. Uh, our schedule, the way it works is we record on Sunday, I edit on Monday, and then I just set it to release at midnight on Tuesday. So that's the current release schedule. Hopefully that's something we can maintain. Yeah. I think for the future we should be able to. Yep. Hopefully. Again, I am working like six to seven days a week, so sometimes shit is difficult. I have not actually had time to research a whole lot about Mussolini in this past week, which is something I need to work on for next week because I need that's my responsibility. Yeah. Uh, I think the next one you're doing uh, up to the March on Rome, correct? At le- I, that's what I'm planning. I'm at least hoping to get through World War One. Hopefully I can get to the, to the March on Rome so that okay. you can pick up because it sounds like you have like stuff written already. Yeah, I have stuff for when after... Uh... He takes power. His yep. sort of... That episode will be mostly focused on his ruling style, sort of. The yeah. fascist administration. How he made the trains run on time? He did not do that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I always loved that. He made the trains run on time. Well, he didn't even do that. Yeah. They were already running on time. I'm pretty sure he made them worse. I, I thought they, I thought the train infrastructure was like shit. Uh, it was better. Well, it was all right before he came to power. I do believe he made them slightly worse. Anyway, that's that's we'll talk about it when we get to that point. Yep. Anyway, that's gonna wrap it up for this episode. Um, bye. We don't ha- we don't know how to do outros. That's I'm also a thing Jake. we don't. Uh, <laughs> also, as always, if you have any experience with audio production, please scream at us and tell us what we're doing wrong. That's what yes, the Twitter please. and email are there for. Please scream at us. Scream into our void, and we will listen. Yeah. Anyway, I've been Mike. I'm Jake. And this has been How the Left Was Won. Goodbye, everyone.